What's up, everyone? I hope you're doing fantastic tonight. This is Rafael Garcia here with Shuan Humes for episode number 231 of the MMA Ratings Podcast. Today is Wednesday, February 9th, and we have quite a bit to talk about. We're going to hit on UFC 271, which is this weekend. Um, Israel Adesanya defends against Robert Whitaker. We're talking about Canelo Alvarez because a lot of news dropped about him today. He has a two-fight deal. We're also going to be talking about um, Thurman Barrios from last weekend as well. And I wasn't sure if we were going to talk about this. Went back and forth, but we're going to be talking a little bit of Joe Rogan tonight, too, to kind of close out the show. But before we do that, as always, I want to say thank you for everyone who's taking the time to check out this show. You can always find us across multiple platforms, including MMARatings.net and .com. That is our flagship. And you can check us out on social media at MMARatings.net in both spaces. This podcast and Let's Talk Wrestling podcast, which is on Thursdays, airs on Apple Podcasts, Breaker, Google Podcasts, Radio Public, and Spotify. Hit us up at MMA Ratings on all those spaces and on YouTube. Be sure to like and subscribe there, too, as well. Shuan, before we start, man, tell us how you're doing. Not bad at all. Just uh, like I told you before, it just started to hit my busy part. A lot of kids and parents are trying to get better. Hopefully, they can... Uh, for the school next year and then also uh, during the summer because that's when you know you go to a lot of these camps and uh, go to these a lot of these tournaments to kind of prove yourself so starting to ramp up for me when is your slow time then usually during the school year for the most part but mostly mostly for me my slow part slow year has been because i haven't had a lot of kids who are like really focused on it so as i get more kids who are really focused on basketball and trying to get better there won't be as much of a lull during the school year because you can't really ever stop working on your game. You might not work on, you might not do two or three times a week. You might just go once a week instead of go four times a week. You might just go twice, but it'd be people who regularly keep working throughout their, throughout the school year, throughout their season so that they maintain their performance instead of kind of dropping off a little bit. So it's just a matter of getting people who are really committed to getting better and really, really serious about basketball. Once you find those people, pretty easy but a lot of people talk like they're very serious but they're not like half the reason i don't charge a lot is i take away that excuse from you like oh well i can't afford to pay 70 dollars a lesson or 50 dollars a lesson i charge like 25 so if you can't somehow find 25 dollars to go once or twice a week 50 dollars a week then you're really not that serious because i'm i'll drive where you need to me to drive i'll drive i've driven all over 70 miles 100 miles to go train somebody so it's not me driving it's not that i don't know what i'm doing it's not the price. You just don't want to. You just don't don't want to get better. And if you don't want to get better, that's fine. But I'm just gonna take away every excuse you have until you just admit that that's 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 not what you're on, which is fine. Just don't waste your parents' time and don't complain to coaches because you don't want to work. I mean, you've heard it from one of the best coaches that we see. Uh, so he basically said what he needed to say. And it's funny that you mentioned people looking to get better because that really defines. The two guys in our main event this weekend where Adesanya is defending his middleweight championship against former middleweight champion Robert Whitaker at UFC 271. So, you know, as I started talking about that, it just made me think, where is this fight going down? You know? Uh, Houston? That's right. It is Houston. Uh, they were talking about Derek Lewis as a co-main event. So let's start um, with this main event there, and let's talk about Adesanya and Whitaker because we have two guys who it's been a little while since they fought. First time around, um, Adesanya fought his way up to the to the title and effectively took it from Robert Whitaker, stopping him in the second round 
via strikes. And Whitaker has taken a path, a difficult path to get back to the championship. And this is one of those situations where I feel like this is a this is a very deserved opportunity for the champion to get another shot at the title. It's not a former champion getting another shot at the title. It's not like Jorge Masvidal getting a shot off of a loss, two losses in a row, or Kobe Covington getting a shot because he screamed and yelled. Robert Whitaker did do, did the work to get back into the title picture here. So what are your thoughts about this fight here? Do you think it will look different than their first contest? And if so, how? Well, before I get into that, I'm, I'm a Robert Whitaker fan. He's a good guy, good husband, good father, uh, fighter with great heart, puts on great fights. And also he's a traditional martial artist at heart. It's his fundamental. So I respect that. I don't know how difficult his path back to the title was. Darren Till, Jerry Cannonier, and Kelvin Gastelum, not exactly a murderer's row of fighters. I mean, they're, they're all ranked middleweights. They're all well and good, but not exactly a murderer's row. It, it's, he, he fought to earn it. He won multiple fights, unlike Massadol, unlike Covington. But I, I, none of those guys is particularly difficult especially given his skill set but like i said he won three fights so it is what it is um the biggest the big when i when they first picked the fight i really thought whitaker would be able to take it i think i ended up picking out a sign but i really thought whitaker would be able to take it because he has a really good jab and he actually has a good skill set my concern for him was instead of working behind his jab and working in the range he has this very big tendency to leap in and leap out of range. And that's fine when you're the better athlete or you're facing strikers who don't have a certain level of seasoning and comfort. Because even if you're a mixed martial artist or you're a regular person who's trained, if you haven't trained to a certain degree, when you're faced with a certain amount of speed or aggression, you might freeze up a little bit. The counter isn't right there. You might cover up. You might just back up because you don't have it drilled into you to search for counters. And if somebody's throwing strikes behind it, if you're not very experienced or you don't spar regularly, you've got to get distance before you can fire back or you've got to kind of cover up and get away and kind of, it's like when you haven't sparred for a while, you start covering up, you, you're afraid to throw shots because your timing's off. And then as you spar more and more and more, even if you're still getting beaten up or outclassed, your counters come off a little bit better. You're a little bit sharper against Derek Brunson's and even Yo Romero's and Ronaldo's and, Rafael Natal's, even Uriah Hall, who's notoriously gun-shy and low volume, you can get away with that. Against Adesanya, who's a long, lanky, accurate counterpuncher, that's a recipe for disaster. He leapt in, Adesanya punched with him, and basically dropped him. Dropped him and stopped him. That, that's the story of the fight. At no point was he setting his strikes up. At no point was he walking himself into range or coming behind a jab or throwing combinations to get himself into position. It was just big, wide attacks and big telegraphic telegraph attacks and trying to cover a huge amount of distance to get in on Adesanya. And it didn't work. He just kept getting picked off, and Adesanya would punch with him and catch him while he was catching Adesanya. And eventually that was his downfall. So I'm assuming at the bare minimum, his, his approach is going to be to work behind his jab, to be responsibly defensively, defensively and to apply more of a suffocating type of pressure instead of trying to explode into spots. Because, as I said before, he's gotten caught versus multiple guys, Hall, Brunson, multiple guys who don't have the awareness or the feel or the discipline or the poise or the skill set 
that Adesanya has. So if he keeps leaping in, he's going to pay that price once again. So I have to assume that he's going to try to set things up more. He's going to try to slow the pace down, be more deliberate in his aggression, and try to work the legs and work the body. I would think he would look to what Jan did when he beat Israel, pressure him, come behind the jab, attack different levels, attack the body, tie him up, get him down, try to wrestle him, and control him and alternate between striking and wrestling. That would probably be his best bet. We already know that he's not going to be able to just load up on shots. Because not only was he not, he was getting hit, he was missing badly. When you look at the fight, he was missing badly. He couldn't get away from everything, and he was out of position, which is half the reason he got knocked out. When you leap in like that, you're running into the shot, and you're you're out of position. You're le- the way you're leaning, leaning in, you're out of position, so you can't even absorb the shot correctly, which he didn't. That's why he got dropped in the first round, why he got finished in the second. So I, I would assume what he's going to do is it's deliberate, intelligent pressure, using the jab, attacking the body, attacking the legs, and even if he can't get takedowns, try to use tie-ups or takedown attempts to take away some of the explosiveness from Israel and to maybe put some pressure on him to maybe make him panic or to kind of control him so that you can land shots on him. As long as you have your hand on somebody, you can get to him. You can land to the body. You can get him into uppercuts or overhand stuff like that, tie him up. But in a free space of movement, Whitaker doesn't always show the discipline necessary to get to a guy who isn't super available to be hit. Israel Adesanya isn't super hard to hit, but he doesn't make himself as available as other fighters in the in the UFC. And that's that was the mistake that uh, Robert made it underestimating that. So I think that's going to be the biggest adjustment he makes. Do you think you've seen enough in his previous three fights or three fights that he's won that gives you the confidence that he'll be able to apply those adjustments in this fight against the champion? None of those guys tested him in that manner. Jared Cannonier is an attribute striker who has whose skill-wise is, in my opinion, very limited. He can throw the leg kick, throw the high kick, throw, you know, a couple shots. He might even be able to throw some advanced shots, but he can't he can't throw them. He can't just peel them off and he doesn't know how to set them up with his pressure or his positioning or his footwork or his feints. A lot of his stuff is big, explosive movements that most guys can't can't handle. Darren Till has length and he is he's long, he's tall, he's got a good chin, but defensively he's not very good. He's not hard to find. I mean, he's one of the few people that Tyron Woodley had knocked out in the in his in his before he kind of fell off completely. Nobody's ever had a really hard time hitting him outside of the fact that he's long and he's physically strong. You can you can hit him left and right. Um he, he's just not very good defensively. I don't find him to be very complex or offensively efficient or dynamic. And Kelvin Gastelum is kind of a face-first fighter who, once again, is mainly a combination of his attributes, his chin, and his his work rate. He's not very technically sound either. So while they're all good wins and they test you in different ways, none of them present the problems that Israel Adesanya presents. Um, They're not as quick as him. They're not as defensively sound. They're not as accurate. Their timing isn't as good. I don't necessarily know that their poise under fire is good, and they're, they're, the layers they have of defensive and offensive skill aren't as deep as his. And I don't I don't think his are great, but compared to Jerry Cannonier, Kelvin Gastelum, and Darren Till, he might as well be Anderson Silva. That's how big a gap it is. So while fighting frequently and being active helps prepare him better, and he could try things out, he didn't face any opponent who could take anything away from him. He could have fought jumping, leaping in and out, and none of those guys could have done anything about it. Kelvin doesn't hit hard enough. 
Till doesn't hit hard enough. And as hard as Cannonier hits, his timing, his placement, and hit the sharpness of his shots isn't consistent enough for him to really land those kind of shots unless Rob just serves himself up. So I don't think any of those guys posed any real technical issues for him. What they posed was more of a matter of durability and athleticism. Kelvin's a good athlete. Cannonier's a good athlete. Darren Till's not great. But those are the areas that can challenge him in. I don't know that they could challenge him in the areas of skill. I would feel that Israel having fought Jan will be better prepared for Whitaker because Jan has a very good jab. Jan is very durable. Jan is defensively responsible, and he has enough of a grappling pedigree and physicality that could emulate anything that Rob would be trying to do. He's not as good an athlete as Rob, but he's a much bigger, probably more durable and stronger fighter. So he could impose his will on on Israel in a way that Rob, Robert can't. Now, Robert might be better technically as a wrestler, but once again, for him to get into those spots, he needs to be disciplined and poised with his striking because if he's just going in wild or he's not committed to his jab or he's not changing levels actively with strikes, then anytime he changes levels for a takedown, Israel's going to see that coming. Anytime he loads up, Israel's going to see that coming. And if he can't work his way into range, Israel's just going to pot shot and pick him off and keep him out of range. So I think Israel has faced guys who have prepared him a little bit more for the fight that I'm thinking Robert's going to have then Roberts faced guys who could force him to have to go into his bag and go go away from his plan A. His plan A worked with all those guys he beat. He didn't have to do anything else. He didn't have to switch gears. He didn't have to make an adjustment. Just plan A. Against Israel Asanya, we've already seen plan A. That didn't work. So instantly, he's going to have to show that he can be a threat with the plan B before he can get any kind of success with plan A again. So then let's talk about the champion there. He has... Um, he's won a, he lost one against Jan Blachowicz, but he's continued to dominate everyone else outside of that since his fight with Whitaker to become the champion. Have you seen anything specific in his growth that makes you look at him differently between the two fights? Um, I haven't really seen. I mean, the biggest thing is when he's been facing guys, they've been the guys who've been more defensively sound and a little bit more meticulous in, in how they attack him. He, has, he hasn't had dynamic wins over Brunson, never known for his defensive responsibility or his office, defensive efficiency, finished dynamically. Who else? Um, Costa, Paulo Costa did not do anything. He was trying to pressure deliberately, but he wasn't attacking the legs when he did it work. He attacked the body when he did it work, but he didn't do enough of it. He got wiped off the map. When he's faced guys who were a little bit more wary or seasoned, in the case of Vittori, Vittori, he kept pressuring, but he was trying to survive. He wasn't. He was looking for a big shot, but he was trying to make sure he minimized whatever Israel Adesanya did. He extended him. Anderson Silva, because he's got a good feel, good positioning, and good defensive techniques as far as rolling and slipping, taking the heat off some of those punches with his shoulder, just going with him and encountering, he was able to extend Israel Adesanya. The question is, is... um. If you're if you come in wide open, gunning for him, he's going to find this the shot to put you out, or at least put a beating on you and extended tool he puts you out. But the question is, can you toe the line between being deliberate pressure and aggression so that you're not so aggressive that you serve yourself up? But if you're just gonna wait and follow him and not stalk him and not pressure him, he's gonna chip you up. I don't know that he's faced a lot of guys. Even the guys who were surviving, they survived and they extended him. But they weren't forcing him to work. They weren't 
putting it, making him uncomfortable. They were just taking shots well and getting certain spots where they couldn't capitalize. So I don't know that we've seen a lot different from Israel because the guys he's faced haven't put him in a position or forced him into a fight where he's had to show more than what he's shown before. I thought you had froze for a second there. Uh, yeah, I think that I'm, I'm interested in seeing what new wrinkles Adesanya may show in this fight here. Do you think wrestling will come into play at all? Did you, do you think that Whitaker has the size and the ability to score takedowns that would that would help him from a scoring standpoint if he wants to make this a scoring affair, or or will he not? Will he struggle to get into that range dealing with Adesanya's abilities? I think he has the wrestling to get him down. I think he has the wrestling. I think he has the athleticism. The question is, as you said, is can you get into the range? Because you can't just run across the cage and take someone down. That's just not going to work. I mean, nobody who's of that kind of caliber with that kind of footwork and length, he's got to work his way into range. He's got to convince him that he's he's got to sell him on the idea that he's a big enough threat or that he's coming in hard enough on the feet to get Israel to overcommit on a shot to hang too long into an exchange or to stand right in front of him so that he can get his hands on him and take him down. And and we don't know how strong Israel Adesanya is. We don't know how, how deep his grappling bag is, but you have to assume that at some point Rob is going to mix in the wrestling. I wouldn't think that he'd go all out wrestling. He could see that Jan did that, but Jan is a much bigger fighter than Robert. He might not be as athletic, but he's much bigger. Um, he seems to take a shot a lot better, just maybe it's off of just being bigger. And from what I've seen, he's a much better grappler than him. So even getting him down, there's a certain amount of control and positional dominance that he can have that I don't necessarily know that Whitaker can have. And once again, Whitaker and, Ro- Whitaker and Adesanya are a little bit closer in height and size, so he won't have that extra length in that bulk to back up his jab and to help him in those clinches and help him navigate those shots of the body or those counters that Israel Adesanya is is going to hit him with. But I'd have to assume he would figure out the wrestling, but it's a matter of setup. If he goes in blind or he starts panic wrestling or just des- wrestling out of desperation, um, not only is he he's going to get, he could get countered and stopped. As you know, and you're a grappler, you've wrestled before. If you're over pursuing and you're, and you're too aggressive, you might not land in the, you might not as get as clean a takedown or you might not be able to secure position because it's out of desperation. So even to get him down, you put so much in getting him down that you can't secure position for a guy who actively addresses that weakness. So it's not a just matter of getting a takedown. It's getting a takedown and being able to control him so that you can keep him down. If he hits the switch, if he butterfly, if he reverses, he just kicks him off or he just rolls through. What have you done? You took a huge amount of energy to get him in this position and you got no work done. You got no work done whatsoever. So the question is, is it being set up correctly? And is he respecting your strikes or are you landing enough strikes that you can create the opening so that you can get a firm hold on him, get a clean takedown and establish position? Because that establishing position is right back to a scramble. It's back to a scramble. Anything can happen because that's when wild exchanges happen. That's when people exhaust themselves. That's when people get stuck in certain positions and get punished. So it's all a matter of how well he sets it up, how well he gets in position on the feet. If he can't do that, then I don't I don't know that the wrestling will be a real factor at all. All right. So then the last piece of this question before we move on to the rest of that show is how do you see this fight going down? Who do you see coming out via um, who do you see coming out with the title and how? 
I think it's probably going to be a decision. I, I like to say it's going to be a stoppage. If it's going to be a stoppage, I I don't think Israel Asanya is, is the most durable fighter. I, I just don't think he is. I'm not saying he can't take a shot, but he hasn't he hasn't been known to just get in heavy firefights with big strikers and to make it through. Rob Rob Whitaker has. The problem is Whitaker tends to he can fight a very disciplined fight and then he has these big lapses in judgment where he stands in front of his opponent, he stops jabbing, he hangs out in certain positions too long, he hangs out in exchanges too long, and and ultimately it puts him in trouble. It put him in a little bit of trouble against Gaslam. I felt in certain moments Cannoneer started getting back into a fight when, when Rob stopped being clinical and decided he was going to put something on him or try to put a stamp on it. He doesn't seem to be able to do both things while being defensively responsible, keeping himself safe. I have to, I would have to think that he's learned and he's going to be able to navigate the strikes and the timing a little bit more and try to slow down the pace of the fight. I don't even know if it might necessarily be exciting for the extents of it. So I think it could go to a decision. If someone's going to get stopped, I'm I'm going to go say it's Robert Whitaker, just because I think a combination of all the wars he's been in, I don't, I don't think he's been the same guy since after the year old Merrill fights. And even before that, he's been in a lot of back and forth, heavy fire where he's given and taken a lot of abuse. And I, I'm not, I'm not sure that he's was a hundred percent. I don't know that he's ever going to be a hundred percent. And the guys he faced on his way back to Adesanya don't have the athleticism or the all round skill to challenge him or punish him for the mistakes that he tends to make when fights get very, very complicated. Um, I expect to see a better Whitaker, a more mature, more poised Whitaker. I'm just not sure what happens when a fight gets wild. Every time fights get wild, he tends to get caught. And against somebody like Adesanya, I don't think you can afford to get caught like that. So I, I think it's most likely going to go to decision, but if someone does get stopped, I'm probably going to say Whitaker, Whitaker gets stopped by KO. Um, somewhere third and fourth round, maybe. Yeah, I want to go with uh, Adesanya by stoppage. I'm going to compare it a lot to Richard Frank, Rich Franklin and um, Anderson Silva when uh, you know they had the first fight and, and Silva stopped him like vicious style. Uh, Franklin fought his way back to the belt. And he did better the second time around, but I think he got stopped in the third third round as opposed to the first. So I could see Whitaker pushing it to the third and fourth round, maybe pushing it deeply. But I think that he, as the fight goes on, he leaves himself open to make, or he leaves himself open by making more mistakes, and he ends up getting finished uh, late in the fight. I really think you might see Adesanya initiate some of these grappling exchanges because is you you've seen him hang out in acropolis exchanges a little bit more on his, you know, when he's defending, he'll sprawl. He, he, instead of just trying to shove away and reset, he'll hang out in position a little bit, see if he can get control, see if he can pin someone down, see if he can hold him down to where he can get a better position or punish him. And I think, I, I really think that he might be looking to test some of his grappling chops. And if Whitaker over pursues or starts getting heavy in those exchanges, just to switch him up and throw him off, I really think you might see Adesanya at least use wrestling to gain control and transition to better opportunities to strike. But I think you really might see him tie up and, and hit a takedown, hit a reactive takedown, tie him up in the clinch and get an inside, inside leg trip. I, I really think you might see some of that from Adesanya because he's a guy, he's a style bender, and a lot of people think it's just a matter of being creative striking. But if you watch his fights, 
little by little, you see a little bit more, more comfort in him engaging in engaging in grappling exchanges or wrestling exchanges. And I think his confidence is growing from that. And that's why he's never afraid to open up striking against guys who are better wrestlers because he feels that he's done the work to neutralize them or to be a threat if it gets into somewhat of a scramble or something. And like I said, Whitaker is a better athlete. I don't. He's clearly not as big and strong as Jan, and I don't think he's as good a grappler. So I think there are spots that you could get him in, especially if you do a certain amount of damage on the feet. Yeah, I definitely agree with that there, sir. Um, let's move on for the rest of the card because we got some other fights of interest on this card. It's not as bad as the last pay-per-view was from a card standpoint, but there are some other fights of interest here. We have Derek Lewis taking on Ty Tuavasa in a heavyweight fight here. I think that this is a big one for Ty because um, Derek Lewis is surprisingly sturdy when it comes to the top of the heavyweight uh, division. Sorry, his tail's in the way. When it comes to the top of the heavyweight division. Um, so, hold on one second. Derek Lewis is definitely the favorite coming into this fight, as I think he rightfully has kind of earned in that position but are we looking at a big upset here if ty picks up the picks up the win i i don't the only reason somebody might think it's an upset is because when Derek lewis is lost he's usually lost to guys who were considered elite fighters in the heavyweight division he lost to daniel cormier and while cormier is not a, a great striker cormier is probably the best heavy well not the best but he's got to be top five of heavyweight wrestlers in the UFC or in mixed martial arts as a whole, given his accomplishments and his resume. That's a guy who has a, has a skill set that is light years better than, than Derek Lewis. When Derek Lewis lost to Cyril Ghosn recently, Cyril Ghosn is a light years better striker than Derek Lewis. From defense to footwork to positioning to combinations to setups to entries to escapes, he is far and away better than him. Ty, Ty is... He's kind of like another Derek Lewis. He's a big, strong guy. The difference is Derek Lewis is more of a counter guy who who uses big strikes and uses the threat of his power to force you in positions where he can make up for his somewhat suspect lateral movement. And he doesn't have to be as good a striker as far as technique or setups because he'll do a big kick and force you back to the cage where he just has to step right or step left and he can walk, walk into a shot. Or he'll kind of chase and pressure you so that you'll take a take a you, you'll panic wrestle or you'll throw out a big strike to get him away from you and then he can slip that and counter it. Ty, I think, has a little bit more nuance to his striking. I think he's trying to progress better as a mixed martial artist. And I don't I don't think it's an I wouldn't think it's an upset as far as who how how they match up as far as athleticism and skill. The only thing that makes him upset is because Lewis generally only loses to elite fighters at this stage. And nobody knows if Ty is truly elite. And the other thing that makes it an upset is because Lewis, as flawed as he is, because if you really think about it, he's not a good grappler. He's not a good wrestler. He's not a good striker. He's a big, tough, strong, smart guy with good timing. So when he loses, is it ever really an upset? I mean, really, if you think about it, is it ever really an upset? Given his skill set? I mean, no, I I feel like... To be honest with you, when I look at Derek Lewis, sometimes I kind of pick against him more often than not because you kind of never know what you're going to get with him. Um, he's I, I feel like some of his big wins were probably more the upset than the other way around. Like I didn't expect him to beat Curtis Blades. Um, I didn't expect him to beat Volkov. So some of those fights where it's like 
there's an upset occurring is more, in my opinion, because Derrick Lewis found a way to pull out a victory. Well, yeah, exactly. He's always beating guys who were better wrestlers and better grapplers, better strikers and better grapplers, better strikers and better wrestlers. I don't know that he's beating the guy who's considered less skilled than he is. And it's like, it's only in the heavyweight division could this happen. I'm not saying Derrick Lewis doesn't train. Obviously he trains, so he's skilled to a degree. But you've probably seen guys who are hobbyists who have better striking technique than Derrick Lewis. They don't hit like him. They're not as durable as him. But, they, I mean, you probably know a lot of people who you grapple with or go to your grappling school who are better grapplers than Derrick Lewis and better wrestlers than Derrick Lewis. They're just not big and strong, as explosive, or hit as hard as him. So he's like the example that every every person on the street uses is like, well, Derrick Lewis, he's winning just throwing big bombs, and I could throw big bombs too. It's I I don't see it's an upset. And I wrote an article in MMA ratings like a couple years ago that I always post when Derrick Lewis fights about why Derrick Lewis isn't elite. And a lot of it becomes he's snatching victory from the jaws of defeat. He has no established skill set. The two main reasons. Nobody can tell me what Derrick Lewis does well technically. The only thing he does well is knock the hell out of people. But he, he doesn't do it with any sort of skill set or strategical mastery that would make you say, oh, I could do that. I mean, to be honest, when I see guys fight on the street, that's what they basically do. They're just waiting, waiting, waiting to land that big shot. Derrick Lewis has like maybe three or five more strikes than those guys. But it's What's the interesting same- is that the way you describe it is like he sounds like he's someone who fights down to his competition, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I would think so, but Derek Lewis has never, I mean, he's shown IQ and awareness and situational awareness. He has not shown any really impressive skill set in his entirety of his career in mixed martial arts. I mean, if you've, if you've seen it, what's the high-level strike we've seen in Derek? I haven't even seen a consistent jab from him. I don't know that I've ever seen him check three three kicks consecutively. You know, um, what, what is it, that, what have you seen from Derek Lewis that says, this guy's one of the elite fighters in the world. Power, durability, and size. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's really true there. Um, so let's move on for the rest of this card because there's a lot to talk about tonight. Uh, what else stands out for, for you on UFC 271? I'll let you go first, and then I have a point that I want to highlight too as well. Uh, well, Bobby Green is fighting again. So um, I'm always interested to see if he if he ever gets to the mastery of where he can balance out his skill set. He always has been a guy who makes guys miss and he talks and he he shimmies and he talks trash to you and he does the 52 blocks, but he's never been a guy who actively counter punches consistently. And if he would just actively counter, he would actually get a lot of guys out of there. A, A lot of his tight wins and some of his losses have been a result of guys throwing 15 shots and him throwing maybe three or four in return. And even though it's three or four clean ones, the question is, if you can land three or four clean of that, why isn't it five and six? And if you're constantly landing, why aren't you hurting guys or putting guys away? He makes fights harder than they have to be by refusing to make guys pay the price of admission for throwing that many shots. So I will never see if he really, really turns that corner to become more of an active counterpuncher consistently. Because if he does, given his athleticism, his wrestling pedigree, and his obviously his striking defense, especially as it pertains to boxing, I, I should feel he should be a lot further along in the in the lightweight division than he is. But those mental gaps and that lack of consistent activity 
in my opinion, has cost him has cost him wins and, and cost him somewhat of a ranking in the UFC. Yeah, I can I can agree with that because um there was points where it's like yo Bobby Green might be a title contender here, but then he doesn't look like that guy when it's all said and done. Um, that, that that's an interesting pick for myself. I am looking at Roxanne Modafari. Her retirement fight is <clears throat> this Saturday, and Roxanne is legit. When we talk about pioneers in sports, uh, whether we're talking about boxing, uh, MMA, or anything in general, that word is thrown around a lot. But Roxanne is definitely a pioneer when it comes to women's MMA. She was really fighting where cards didn't have space for women or they didn't want to include women. She's fought and, and beaten a lot of the big names that people kind of knew before Ronda and before UFC kind of bought in and before Bellator bought in and all those other situations. There's a lot of women who wouldn't be around right now if it wasn't for the work that Roxanne did to kind of open up that door and seeing her retire this uh, Saturday, I think it's going to be a pretty, pretty big moment. And I hope she gets the, um, I hope she gets the praise that she deserves when she hangs it up. I feel, I feel bad for her to a degree because um, like you said, the big stars always get highlighted for you know, bringing attention to a sport or helping a sport move further along. In, in women's boxing, Clarissa Shields gets a lot of credit. Katie Taylor gets a lot of credit. Serrano gets a lot of credit. But it's like there were women who toiled and fought whoever they could and fought on undercards and were underpaid for years. And if they didn't consistently do that to create a lane, you you wouldn't get to the million-dollar payday. Some for somebody to achieve the highest of success, somebody's got to be, you know, if you want to say it in, in working terms, cleaning the bathrooms, mowing the yard, whatever it is. A lot of people who've accomplished great things came from families who built, put them in that position as a result of jobs that you consider less popular or less, they don't have as much um, cachet as others. And for women's mixed martial arts, Ronda Rousey gets a lot of credit, fine. Misha Tate gets a lot of credit. Cyborg gets a lot of credit. A lot of people get a lot of credit, but when people talk about the great fighters or culturally impacting fighters in women's mixed martial arts, people don't mention Rachi Matafari. And not only did she compete at a high level when it wasn't really an organized sport, like she fought through the caveman days of women's mixed martial arts, she actually restructured, refined her skills, diversified her skills, just turned herself into a whole new fighter after basically being run, almost run out of the sport because she couldn't strike. She redefined herself and came back in and was just beating the hell out of everybody and got her way all the way back to a title shot um, for the initial, what is it, flyweight title in the UFC. Now, I know she didn't win. Uh, she got beat by Nico Montagna, who who was a coach by friend of the show, uh, Misfit from NHB Fit. Um, but it's quite an accomplishment. You, It's like Hoist Gracie retiring and coming back and being like a competent striker. It, people don't understand how hard she had to work to get to that point or how much work she's done. People don't understand how unathletic she is and how she's managed to get wins over world-class opposition with really no, no standout athletic ability. I, I don't think she's ever going to get the credit she deserves, and I don't think she's ever going to get the acknowledgement or the benefits for what she's done for the sport, both in how she's represented herself and both in how she's performed. I, I don't see any form or fashion in how that happens. Um, she should be ranked up there, even though she didn't win a title with Misha Tate's and the Ronda Rousey's. And that, 
unfortunately, probably is, is never going to happen. I mean, for God's sake, she was on a show being coached by two fighters who came up after her. Think about how crazy that is. That's like Ken, Ken Shamrock being in a show where he's being coached by guys who came up 10 years after him. Like, he would never sign on for that. And she should never had to be in a position to do that. But she took every opportunity that was presented to her. She never ran from any challenge. And she fought all over the world. You have to respect what she did as a fighter. You have to respect what she did as a, a woman of sport. So I, I congratulate her on her career. And I think she got engaged recently. So congratulations to her on that as well. Yeah, she did. I saw her post about that. Um, so, yeah, I'm definitely happy for her as well, too. Uh, yeah, let's move. Shout out to Israel Adesanya, who took a moment during his press meeting with the press where he actually mentioned her and gave her a lot of props for what she did. Unfortunately, you don't have a lot of women fighters who are big name women fighters who are speaking out about what she meant to the sport. And I know you got, I can only think of one male fighter who spoke up on her behalf. And there's a lot of male fighters who've been fighting for a lot longer who've known her or been on cards with her who should be posting on Twitter or talking to media about her. And it's not happening. It's, it's quite insulting to be, honest very true there uh let's move on to talk about boxing sir because uh canelo is the man's hardest man the hardest working man in the sport so he tentatively seems like he has a two-fight deal set up for 2022 where he is scheduled to fight dimitri Baivol on may 7th and then we're getting that that trilogy fight with triple g on september 13th what are your thoughts about that first when you saw the news is this is this a good schedule for him are these two guys that you think strengthens his legacy at this point or should he be fighting someone else uh fighting bivol right bivol um bivol is probably the toughest challenge out of anybody he could have faced people keep people want him to face charlo because charlo's explosive charlo's trash talks he's considered a punishing fighter who's a ko threat bivol has gotten to be a little bit maybe um, predictable, maybe a little bit unexciting, maybe a guy who who doesn't really put on shows when he fights. Like, he, he's just kind of a paint-by-the-numbers guy who wins but doesn't do so in a particularly dynamic fashion where you, you know, it's, it's not really an exciting fight. But if you look at the actual skill set and you look at the actual qualifications of what he does and how he does it and who he's beaten um, – it's a it's a really tough match. He's an active fighter. He's a, he's a very skilled fighter. He's tough. He's well conditioned. He's got a very high IQ. It's one of those against most people. Canelo has a huge IQ and either offensive or defensive skill advantage over them. Against Bivol, he's going to be facing a guy who who can match that IQ, who maybe can't match the hand speed of him, but who's got a size and physicality where he can. He can impose his will on Canelo to a degree, but he's also got enough of a boxing acumen and history where a certain shots that Canelo lands freely, certain shots that he gets away from freely, he's going to have to work a little bit more because he's facing guys, a guy with a deeper bag of skills. Caleb Plant was a guy who used his feet and his his jab. Billy Joe Saunders was a low-volume pot shot guy who used being defensive and a lot of feints to avoid things. These guys didn't have complete games. These guys didn't have particularly deep skill set. Bivol does, and he's been a longtime amateur and a longtime fighter. Now he hasn't been as active as he should have been, as he should be. He actually had almost like what a two-year layoff. But the fact of the matter is, he is 
a world-class fighter, a world champion fighter, and one of the more all-round experienced and all-round skilled boxers in the sport. A win over him has a lot of weight to it. It's not as sexy as a Charlo fight or or Benavidez fight, but it's a much more dangerous fight. It's far facing someone who's a contemporary with comparable skills and IQ as Canelo. The Golovkin fight, um, Golovkin hasn't lost since, I mean, he hasn't lost since he lost to Canelo. He's fought a pretty tough, you know, a fairly tough ledger of people, but it's really kind of a money fight. Um, they've had a long history. They've had two fights. This would be the closeout fight. Um, Golovkin's lost his step. He's not the same guy. He still has that all-time great jab. He's still got hard. He's still durable. He can still box. But this seems like it's more of a fight to close out the trilogy, to make the zone and Canelo a huge payday, and to send Golovkin off with a huge payday, win or lose. He's probably not going to fight on past that. So I don't really have a problem with it. Canelo's taking on a very dangerous, very accomplished fighter. In both fights, it's just in one of those fights, one guy's been clearly in decline for about the last year and a half to two years. Do you think that Glovekin has anything to offer Canelo this time around to be different than the first? Can he win this fight? And if so, how? He'd have to put on, he'd have to bring out one of those old time, like older fighters usually have a fight or two, maybe three, where they just go back to who they were or a version of who they were and they can perform well in a fight, be competitive, maybe pull off a pull off a win against an opponent who's not as experienced, maybe an opponent who's not as seasoned, opponent who has some limitations in their skill set that they can exploit. You you see it happen. You see it happen from time to time. I don't know if it works against Canelo because one, he doesn't really like Golovkin. I don't think he could stand to lose to him. And two, Canelo has gotten noticeably better in all aspects of boxing, whether it's his ability to pressure, his ability to counter, um, his poise, his patience, um, his his um, sharpness in extended exchanges, his defensive responsibility in extended exchanges. Even from the first fight to the second fight, in the first fight, Golovkin was pressuring, 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 getting behind his jab, winging shots, trying to break Canelo down, and Canelo was slipping, sliding, pivoting, looking for counters, uh, looking to roll off the shots, block shots, and, and fire down the pipe on on Golovkin. The second fight was a dramatic, dramatic change. All of a sudden, Canelo was the one stalking. Canelo was the one pressuring. Canelo was the one throwing big power. And Golovkin was the one boxing and standing on his toes and trying to get away from the pressure and look for opportunities to out-jab and counter or to slow his pressure down so he could build up his own momentum. And that was, what, excuse me, two or three years ago, Golovkin's durability isn't what it used to be. Um, now when he gets hit with shots, he gets marked up in a way he didn't before. His hand speed was never great, but it's taken a step back. And even though he has the power because of the deterioration in his foot speed and hand speed, he's not able to get off the shots as much as he wants to. He headhunts a little bit more than he usually does. And his body assault that used to be feared only makes inconsistent appearances in fights. So if he fought at his best, and he could just bring out one big performance. It could be a very good fight. I don't know that at this point it's a winnable fight for Golovkin unless Canelo takes him not seriously at all. But Canelo, A, seems to love boxing, and B, understands the business of boxing. A loss to Golovkin is 
disastrous to him at this point because there's a good chance if he loses the Golovkin, Golovkin retires on that note. Golovkin can handle handle a exciting loss in going into retirement much more so than Canelo could deal with losing to what is a faded version of Golovkin and then having Golovkin ride off in, into the sunset with a win over him. Um, so I, I don't see how he wins it, but I, I do think he could pull out one or two more great performances and, and put on a show for the fans. Plus, he, he doesn't like Canelo. He doesn't want to lose Canelo, and he he doesn't want to get outclassed by him. So that might be enough for him to really push himself training to really come in there as sharp as possible because he knows this is going to be his last shot and most likely his last fight. Who has a better chance of winning uh, between Bival and uh, Triple G? Who has a better chance of being the one to shock, shock the world? Bival would probably be the one. I don't know that he takes enough chances. I don't know that he throws enough volume. And even if Bival, if Bival beat Canelo, it'd be an upset just because Canelo is so popular in, in the, the streak he's run on of beating world champions and world ranked fighters. But the, a lot of boxing hardcores would understand it wouldn't be that big of an upset. Bival is he's he's a dangerous fight because he's high risk, low reward. He's got all the skills and physical tools to beat Canelo in some form or fashion. But what he doesn't have is any of the charm, any of the charisma, any of the exciting, you know, internet set on fire knockouts that is going to, that would cushion the blow. If Charlo knocked out Canelo, it would have a certain kind of meaning to it because Charlo's shown himself to, for the most part, be a step of class, step above most people. If Bivol beats him, it's most likely going to be by decision, which means Canelo was outboxed. That might not, A, be the most exciting fight, and B, it'd be something for hard for a lot of people to accept because Canelo's considered the all-round boxer, the guy in the sport. So that that might not be a popular decision either. But people who know boxing know that Bivol is a dangerous fight, and beating Canelo is within his skill set and is within his ability to do. But people outside the sport are just going to say, I've never heard of this guy. It's an easy win. And that's what a lot of Canelo's, Canelo hate comes from. People say he's ducking guys, but he's fighting undefeated champions. It's not his fight. It's not his fault they won't fight better competition or beat other guys to cement themselves as challenges. All he can do is, is go after the best opposition possible, and he's beating guys with titles. He's beating number one contenders. Some of the guys he's beat have gone, have gone on three or four fight win streaks against world-ranked opposition. So what's made Canelo separate is he's willing to fight a lot. He's willing to fight dangerous fights that most guys aren't willing to fight. Everybody wants to fight the money fight. Everybody wants to fight the name guy. Nobody seems willing to bet on themselves and face guys who were A, undefeated, or B, stylistically challenging for them. And Canelo keeps doing that. The biggest, the biggest loser out of all this is everybody else who's been waiting on that Canelo stimulus check because they like to wait around until they can and say he's ducking them. But Canelo's constantly taking on guys who are more proven, more established, and more accomplished than every single guy who says he's ducking. They're like, oh, he's running from me. He's not running from Demetrius Andrade and Charlo to fight Demetrius Bivol. Bivol's a bigger threat than both of them. Bivol's a more accomplished boxer than both of them. That's a more dangerous fight. They're going to say he's ducking Charlo, but he's fighting a more dangerous guy. Just like Caleb Plant said he was ducking him, and he's fighting... Billy Joe Saunders, who's a, who's is comparable, who's more accomplished than Caleb Plant. He's constantly fighting the best opposition while everybody else avoids the best opposition and calls out his name and waits for him to grace them with the payday. 
that's ultimately what's gotten Canelo where he is. And that's why I think he's not going to lose anytime soon because he's constantly facing guys he has to be at his best to beat. That can't be said for most champions, um, especially in the heavier weight divisions. They're fighting guys who are who really don't have any chance based on athleticism, skill, or accomplishment. Good analysis there. So I'm really interested uh, in seeing how those two situations play out and what that means uh, for him long term, because he's beating everybody and he's doing it in a fashion where it's like, well, who else is left? It's almost like the old the old Bill Goldberg run from like the early or was it the, or like the late late 90s or whenever that was when he was beating everybody and he kept saying who's next at, at the end of every every match. This is basically the same thing here. If you look at his record. He lost to Floyd Mayweather, but look at the guys he's fought. Shane Mosley, Floyd Mayweather. Floyd Mayweather, one of the greatest boxers of all time. Shane 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 Mosley is one of the best boxers of his generation. Austin Trout was a title holder. Um, James Kirkland. Go ahead. I said he fought um, Miguel Cotto as well. Yeah, Miguel Cotto. Even though Miguel Cotto was, was, had been a little bit faded, Miguel Cotto was still one of the better boxers in that division. Julio Cesar Chavez, you can say Junior, might not be the fighter his dad was, but the fact is he was a former world champion who defended his belt three separate occasions. Billy Joe Saunders, Caleb Plant, now Dimitri Bivol. He's fought a lot of guys who were number one ranked contenders for titles. He's gotten a lot of his titles from these guys he's fought. He's defended his title against a lot of these guys. So most fighters don't have his resume. Most fighters, even when they become world champions, start fighting their mandatories, who are second and third tier fighters. If you start looking at the resume of the guys Canelo's fought, they have very good records. They're world-ranked fighters. They've earned their spots, and they've won world championships and defended world championships. He's not fighting a bunch of bums. He's not fighting a bunch of guys we don't know. He's going after – he's doing what people ask fighters to do. Go after another champion. Try to unify titles. Face better guys. Danny Jacobs, Gennady Golovkin. I mean, I don't know anybody who in the past five years has fought a tougher schedule than Canelo. And he doesn't have to because he's the money guy. He does not have to fight tough fights because he can make money with anybody. He's choosing to search out challenges. And people can say he's ducking or he's picking, but the guys they're claiming he's ducking or he's avoiding are guys who aren't as accomplished, who aren't fighting, is known or as accomplished opposition as him. It's it's this weird, bizarre world we live in when it comes to boxing. Yeah, definitely. Um, and it's interesting because he, if you look at across combat sports, at, at all the champions available, he's probably the one that's taking the most dangerous fights at any given moment um, across combat sports easily. Yeah, I mean, that that's all. Still, he moved up to fight Kovalev. Oh, Kovalev's a bum. Kovalev was shot. Kovalev just regained his title. He regained his title, and he beat a young, hungry, lightweight contender who was considered in the top five. So now when he beats a light, he gets his title back. And he beats a lightweight contender. It's a great story. He's a great fighter. He showed his grit. He showed his seasoning. Canelo fights him. He's shot. Which one is it? Six, three months ago, you, you said it was a great story. He showed he still had it. Now he's shot when a guy's moving up two weight classes to fight him? Like, I know he's not the same Kovalev, but the fact of the matter is the guy is still moving up two weight classes. And if it's such easy work, why didn't Charlo do it? Why didn't Benavidez do it? Do it. Why didn't Billy Joe Saunders do it? Why did Caleb Plant do it? Why none of them take those chances? If it's such easy work, why is he the only one willing to take these chances? He's already getting paid. He doesn't have to take them. The guys complaining about money could move up two weight classes 
if I if fight Bevo. They were all got bigger names. Bevo would take Bevo would fight Charlo. Bevo would fight Plant. Bevo would fight Billy Joe Saunders if they moved up to fight him. Why is the guy who's making the most money the one who's willing to take that fight? Mm-hmm. That's my all good 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 stuff there. So let's um, I want to move on to our last topic for the essence of time. And you know this is the part we're gonna talk about Joe Rogan a little bit. And this is kind of like my wheelhouse here because it's an interesting it's interesting to watch from my uh, perspective. I think it's like a two pronged controversy for everyone who's aware. Uh, there's a, a big push to get co- um, to get Joe Rogan pulled off of Spotify for two main reasons. One, because of his um, frequent use of voices that spread COVID misinformation. That's one part of it. And the other part of it is his rampant use of the N-word, nigger, we're going to say it, but his rampant use of that word and it's kind of been brought back up. Um, and it's interesting because there are individuals who are thinking of this as like a controversy to get him taken off the air for whatever reason. I don't think that that's the case, but it's really kind of broken out into two spaces for me. There's obviously the, the COVID misinformation part. I'm not going to speak to that so much because, again, I'm not a scientist, um, not a doctor, not a medical professional. I'm going to leave that where it is. I do know who to listen to in those spaces, and a lot of those individuals aren't the people that I, that would be on Joe Rogan's podcast. And the other part of that is the you is the question around whether or not Joe Rogan is racist or not. And I, and this is a very interesting conversation. I've listened to a lot of people really talk about it. And what stood out to me is a, is a couple of different pieces. Um, first, I've listened to a lot of the clips where he has said nigger for whatever reason it may have been. Um, I've listened to his apologies, both of them that he put on on Instagram. I think they're full of shit. Uh, I don't believe that they're actual apologies at all. They're excuses, um, in my opinion. But listening to the clips in which he said what he said, the context of them are the context of those clips and those conversations he was having was was usually around the idea of why can't we why can't everybody say this word? And it's hidden behind the idea of free speech. This is a word that's off limits. It's one of the, it's one of a couple of words that are kind of like off limits, but it's the one that always keeps coming back up. And every, it seems like everybody wants to say, whether it be because they see something, watch a Quentin Tarantino movie, they uh, listen to hip hop. Everyone feels like this should be the one word that should be said, when in reality, it's probably one of the most dehumanizing words in the English language by a, by a country mile. The reason being is because it's the same word that was used when people were getting drunk out their house and lynched. It's the same terminology that people use to talk about MLK, Mega Evers, Ali, and, and other people who fought for simple civil rights. It's, the same, it's, it's used to demean and strip people of their humanity. So why would you want to push the idea of, I have the freedom of speech, so I should be able to use this term. That's the first issue that popped out to me. But the thing that really kind of the worst comment that he made was the one in reference to the black and the white brain. I don't know if you saw this one as well, too, but he was talking to someone that's biracial and he was like, you have the best of both worlds. You have the brain of a white man and the body of a of a black man. And that's like that's some old school plantation racism right there, in my opinion. Uh, and, and it's wrapped up in all types of pseudoscience that just is is completely full of filth. And if you know that, to hear him say that 
on his podcast with the straight face, you have to kind of question that. Um, and you have to really kind of, you have to really question why are we having a conversation about freedom of speech based solely around the word nigger? Like, why is that the word that we, everyone wants to be empowered to say? So um, do I think Joe Rogan is racist? No, but I think he has some racist tendencies. I, like, like, that's really it. Like, in, in, in my opinion, when I think I, when I think of racism, I think of it as a space of like racism and discrimination. I look at people like Ben Shapiro and Jordan Peterson and like those right wingers who are trying to strip rights from everybody. I look at them as more racist than I would Joe um, Rogan. But his podcast is troubling to me because if you listen, if you look at the people like his reach is massive. Like I, I didn't even I knew it was big, but I didn't even know how big it was until the situation came up. And what makes it so bad is that the people who listen to his shows, the age group, the demographic, they're the individuals that are like college aged men, for example. They're gonna be the individuals who are lawyers, doctors, uh, teachers, professors, um, judges, all those individuals in the future. And if they have the radicalization put into them that they should be pushing to to use words such as nigger or use other terms that are basically off limits or to think of people as less than that's going to have long-standing ramifications i'm like if you look at the people who were marching around in charlottesville a few years ago they were younger individuals younger than both of us so that really kind of shows like this isn't going to go away and the more voices the bigger platforms that we have continuing to, to spread this type of information it's only going to get worse. I do not believe Joe Rogan is going to be deplatformed. I don't think there's any way you can really do that. Howard Stern didn't get deplatformed. Alex Jones didn't. Um, Don Imus didn't. There's no one that's really, no no rich white man that's really been deplatformed in any, any way, shape, or form. So listening to this, the, all the talk going around about Joe Rogan and all the uh, situation, and the entire situation, it's really troubling to me, especially from an MMA standpoint because there's a lot of voices in MMA that are that are throwing their support behind Joe Rogan and it really makes you think how welcome we are in the the sport. Joe's not going to be punished. He's not going to be taken off the UFC 271. They haven't announced the desk for 271 yet, but I won't be surprised if he's there. He's not going to face any ramifications. Dana White's not going to be asked about it. None of the fighters are going to be asked about it. So there it's it's really interesting to watch this from an MMA standpoint because we I know we're not already we're already not really welcomed in the uh, space and this kind of further signifies it and it's there's just so much to really unpack here but at the end of the day this is another situation where the dehumanization of of black or white people um me personally like I I would think I would think that people who work for the UFC, people who know him personally, because if I, I don't know about everybody else who wants a public apology or needs to go on Instagram or something, like if there was somebody I knew who had said something crazy, I wouldn't tweet about it. I wouldn't make a post about it. Like, oh, what do you think about your friend? I wouldn't say anything about it. If I know this person, I'm just going to go directly to them. I don't need to put on a show for you. I don't need to prove my blackness. I don't need to, I don't need to do all that stuff. I would go to the person I have an issue with and I would discuss it with them directly. I would assume Daniel Cormier, Israel Desai, I would assume people who know him and people who are around or people who've been around him have spoken to him. I don't know that, but I would assume. And if they have spoken to him, I don't think they would 
wanting to come out and make a statement. I would imagine even Kamar Uzma might have called him. Because if it's somebody you've had these conversations with and he has their number, he has access to them, I would think in a situation such as this, whether I speak on it publicly or not, I would just contact them. If you if I said something crazy, I wouldn't want you to go on post and be like, well, Shimon, da, 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 da. if you had to, because it was a, a, a financial issue or some kind of legal issue, that's one thing. But if you felt I was out of pocket over something, then I would expect you to, to call me and talk to me directly about it. Then I could determine if I want to change it or not. If I, if I, you know, choose to build on it or whatever, then you might have to say something to separate yourself from it. I get that. But I would talk to the person directly. I would agree with you. I don't think he's, I don't think he's racist. I said this, I said this to um, my daughter's mom recently. We were talking and I was telling her, um, I think Joe Rogan is not a malicious, I don't think he's racist really, but if he is racist, He's more of a he's a non-malicious racist person. And that's actually the most dangerous one because it's a joking tone. It's it's an inquisitive tone. It's I want to learn tone. And I and I understand that. Trust me, I, I went to school at all white school. I've been around black people who had not re- really dealt with white people. And the questions they would ask about each other, if I was of the other race, I would as a black person, I was insulted. And if I was a white person, I'd be insulted by the questions black people were asking about us. But do y'all really smell like dog? Like you really said that? Like, dude. But I think he's a, he's a non-malicious racist. And the questions he asks to young people coming up, they're like, well, like you said, it's why can't we say that word? The people who are actually crazy and burn stuff down and flip trucks and threaten people and attack little children, everybody can see that. And for the large majority of us, everybody is disgusted by that. So that kind of racism, people try to separate themselves from. People, you know, people try to separate themselves from. They're just like, whoa, 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 that's not me. The kind of joking racism, the kind of using the word, the kind of making certain stereotypes, that's the kind of racism that can permeate people because they just it's just posing a question. I'm just saying you shouldn't let that word have control over you. And me personally, that word is I've been called that so many times. It doesn't even bother me at this point. I'm not reacting because somebody called me that. That doesn't mean it's right for them to call me that. And it doesn't mean that somebody else isn't going to tee off on you for saying it. It just doesn't impact me like that. I've. I've gotten to the point where it just doesn't impact me like that. As long as you're not touching me and threatening my family, what do I care? Say whatever you want. It's your business. But I think that the tone he takes and the inquisitive tone he takes and the way he has people who are accomplished and supposed to be academics and stuff of that nature, I think that can empower it and make it carry over a little bit more than it would in other circumstances. Because like I said, if you see a guy attacking a little black girl, everybody's disgusted by that. What are you doing? Somebody's burning someone's house down. What are you doing? Somebody's killing people. What are you doing? Somebody's just making an inquisitive question about why can't we say that word? Well, that makes sense to me. Why can't we say that word? You know, you say that word. It doesn't have to mean that word. Leo, you know, one person told me they're like Leonardo DiCaprio was in that movie. He didn't want to say it, but Samuel Jackson said he had to. So if you don't want him saying the word, why do you have him saying it at all? Why is it okay for the actor to say it? They were encouraging him to say it. It's just it's just a line of logic you can't really follow if you're on the other side of it, but it's a line of logic that has enough lee- leeway or enough of a playfulness in its tone that other people can use it to build their uh, build their bias around or build or shift someone's opinion about others around. Because then it becomes, why are they so sensitive about the word? You weren't a slave. Why are you upset about that? You didn't get beat by the cops. Why are you upset with that? You live in this neighborhood. Why are you upset with that? It just, it kind of undermines the foundation of what black people have gone through and why they have an issue with that word or they have an issue with being 
categorized a certain way or classified a certain way. But it's all in a intellectual, jovial tone talked about by guys who are fairly accomplished, fairly popular, and academically established guys. So it makes it seem like it has a legitimacy that it doesn't really have. But no, I don't think Joe Rogan's racist. I don't really know what I think about the situation. Um, I, I, I really, I'm just really tired of hearing about it. I'm tired of the situation. I'm tired of the explanations. Um, I don't know if I buy his apology or not. I don't know if it's genuine or not. It's better than some of the apologies I've heard from people when they've gotten caught in these situations. It, at least he kind of admitted it to a degree. I've heard people say, like, I was on medicine. I had been without a sleep. I was tired. I was stressed. At least he kind of owned it to a certain degree, I guess. I don't know. But I, I do not think he's racist. I, I know he's not going to be really punished for this. We know Dana White's not going to do it. Um, he makes too much money for Spotify to do it. The only thing I can hope is A, it was genuine, and then B, the people who, even the people who are supporting him, I'm hoping that someone pulled him to the side and had a direct conversation with him. Like, look, man, maybe I'm going to, maybe I'm going to fall on this sword for you, but we have to have a serious talk about that. That's the best I can hope for, because this is something that doesn't ever seem like it's really ever going to go away, no matter how much we're supposed to come together as a people or how much races overlap. The fact of the matter is there's just this, um, inherent issue that's that doesn't seem like it's going to get any better to be like be quite honest in fact it seems like it's it's only gotten worse to be honest maybe not as overtly but in that secondary passive aggressive microaggression way it seemed like it's only gotten worse it's just not as overt now instead of somebody burning down your house they'll keep you from getting a loan they'll keep you from getting your house they'll get you fired from a job but it, it's it just hasn't seemed to get any better and um i'm a little i'm disappointed in joe rogan um not that he cares what i think I don't think he's a bad person. I I just think it's just given how much he deals with people and how much he speaks about being enlightened and loving people and making a difference and helping people be better to be in this kind of, to be in this kind of um, situation kind of undercuts any positive aspects of his show and of his, um, of anything he does. It just does. Whether, whether you believe him or not on a grand scale, it undercuts any positives he does financially for other people or even in life lessons because some some of his shows have 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 some value but it's it's all going to be undercut by this and it's and once you get caught in this kind of situation it's really hard for you to ever come back and i'm not feeling sorry for him but it's just it's going to be hard for him to ever really come back and even people who are going to be okay with it you have to wonder from now on like was he really just saying it or was it was it this or was it that yeah i don't think his his listenership is going to dwindle in any way it's going to grow from this actually and um i think that when i think of this uh situation i agree with you i don't i don't really uh, believe in his apology in in any sense either um goodness i was going to say something and i just slipped my mind in reference to this but um yeah i think it's it's a situation that's not going to go away and it's something that we're we we're going to continue to hear about go ahead I, I don't, <clears throat> once again, like, I, to me, to be straight up, I think a large majority of people, black, white, Hispanic, whatever, all have a certain amount of prejudice to each other. I really believe that. I don't think Joe Rogan is a bad person. I think what he's doing is going to empowers and empowers a certain segment 
of the country. And I don't know that he really understands that. I don't think he understands it. I think he thinks he's asking questions. I think he thinks he's sharing information, whether it's about COVID or race or whatever. I think some of the comments are made from ignorance. A lot of them are. And he thinks he's asking questions. He thinks he's helping by providing more information or having having a different perspectives on race, on people, on psychology, on health, on relationships. But he doesn't understand there's a certain segment of people who are looking for anything to grab onto. And when you have somebody as successful as him and as accomplishes him physically, personally, financially, they can build their platforms and build their message off of things that he's saying. And I think that's where the the gap is. Maybe he's, his friends are okay with him saying that word. And maybe his friends, everybody's had conversations with their friends that they would never want to get out. The weird thing is he keeps having these conversations on a show that's seen by hundreds of millions of people. And he seems a little bit oblivious to the fact that there's a segment of people who do not like black people, do not like any sort of person of color who use these arguments to empower themselves, to impose their will, or to lash out at people who they feel are getting benefits that they don't deserve or getting advantages they don't deserve or have rights that they don't deserve. That's that's the biggest issue for me, that the cognitive dissonance between what he's saying and the impact it has on the grander scheme of the world. He might not, in fact, be a malicious racist. He may not be a racist at all, but the things he's saying are things that racists use for ammunition and fire to push their message and to build the courage of they need to do to do certain things. Look what Joe Rogan said. The black mind and the white body. Now they're now now they've got our they've got access to our minds, but they still got the power of a black man. I I know somebody whose relative said something like that because I know people who have racist relatives. They said that for a fact. They're like, this is a big concern for us as white people because now they're physically superior than us and they're our mental equals. What the hell are you talking about? And he was quoting Joe Rogan. That's that's my biggest concern about that. People who do not have the the bandwidth or the experience to understand. He doesn't know as much as he thinks he is. And some of the things he's saying are dangerously close to playing with fire. Those young people you speak of who are going to think they're just asking questions or posing questions or making scientific points when the stuff he's saying isn't rooted in any scientific facts. That's that's my biggest concern. Not Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan's one person. As you said, it's the broader scope of people who will be influenced, which is the big issue. So the last thing I'm going to say about this, and we're going to close out the show after that, is that I do believe that um, Joe Rogan knows exactly what he's doing. And what I mean by that is I'm not going to allow that feigning in ignorance or just trying to have intelligent conversations, because if you look at the people that he has on his show, they all sit within a similar vein. He doesn't bring a Nicole Hannah-Jones. He doesn't have a Michael Eric Dyson. He doesn't bring on a Bakari Sellers. He doesn't bring on a Jamel Hill. He doesn't bring on anyone that would easily talk down any of these ridiculous narratives around black people, around the use of the word nigger, around the black mind and white body or whatever, white body and white, whatever it was. He, he doesn't bring on anyone to have any type of conversations that would be able to easily debunk those situations. So that tells me that he, he knows exactly what he's doing and he's doing it intentionally. Um, so I, I, you know what? that is almost an impossible point for me to argue. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm a really laid back guy. I'm re- really kind of chill, but I, I don't have an argument. I don't know those people come on the show, but if at least he made the offer, he'd have something to stand on. But he doesn't. And if he did, I'd be pulling out right now. Look, I offered. They didn't come. Mm-hmm. But he didn't. You're right. So, I mean, like, that's, really, like, that's where I stand. I think he knows what he's doing. 
But uh, yeah, let's go ahead and close out, man. What are you working on this week? And what can we expect to see from you before we get back on next week for episode 232? Uh, I think I'm, I'm actually writing an article for actually for another website. It's covering uh, the uh, Leah McCourt, uh, Sinead Kavanaugh fight. It's going to be in Bellator. I know a lot of people are like, why are you covering that fight? Because somebody needs to give these ladies their coverage and their respect for what they're doing. It's not just a one-sided sport. So I, I try to make sure I give the women who are fighting just as much of a technical assessment or breakdown or historical run-through when I make articles for them and not just the typical kind of, oh, this person wins, this person loses. Because as you notice, when you see the male breakdown, they talk about this guy in 2015 and how were he's at 2021. When they talk about the female fights, it's real, it's real thin, it's real shaky, it's real platonic. So I try to make sure I pay attention to some of the less glamorous fights as well as the more important ones. And I make sure I give them the respect as fighters and, and take their fights and how they're approaching them very seriously. So that's what I'm working on. Other than that, I'm, I'm always on Twitter, either talking basketball for one, or I, you know, I'm always telling people, if you want to talk about the finer points of boxing, mixed martial arts and coaching, you know, DM me, hit me on Twitter because I'm always willing to have that conversation and share my experiences with fighters, with coaches, and, and how that goes about. Good stuff, sir. So with that in mind, we're going to go ahead and close out. Uh, thank you, everyone, for joining us for episode 231 of the MMA Ratings Podcast. We'll be back here next week to talk about all the fallout from UFC 270 and anything else that goes on between now and then. So thank you, everyone, for joining us, and have a great and safe week. Have a good one, everybody. <laughs>